is right next to it. Like, okay, people. Uh, I will read Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 1 to 14. Somebody told me in their posting that this is a common text for weddings, which it's amazing what you discover from students. I didn't know it was a, it was a, a standard text for weddings. They wondered what I thought of it as a text for weddings. Well, I would have thought there were more cheerful texts for weddings <laughs> than anything in Ecclesiastes. Well, actually, except the bit about... Um, uh, enjoying your your life with your wife. It's rather neat the, where the guy says uh, that. So, but uh, uh, Ecclesiastes chapter three verses one to fourteen. Listen to it and see um, what you think it says to you. For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to throw away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to turn on the computer and a time to turn off the computer. A time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear, and a time to sow, a time to keep silence, and a time to speak, a time to love, and a time to hate, a time for war, and a time for peace. What gain have the workers from their toil? I have seen the business that God has given to everyone to be busy with. He has made everything suitable for its time. Moreover, he has put a sense of past and future into their minds. Yet they cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I know that there is nothing better for them than to be happy and to enjoy themselves as long as they live. Moreover, it is God's gift that all should eat and drink and take pleasure in all their toil. I know that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done this, so that all should stand in awe before him. Things that makes you think? Everybody would like to understand how the whole thing, what the big picture is, but you tend not to know it, which just kind of um, fits with Job, really. There's a, big, there's a picture that's bigger than you, Job.
season you're in, can you read this? Uh, or what side of either one of these kind of Right, 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 yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, the verse that says, nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it, speaks to me in terms of, uh, there's nothing I could do or not do will change God. Is that bad news or good news? <laughs> nothing that we can do is going to change God. I think I'm quite pleased with that, really. Mm -hmm. I kind of want to add a twist to this. <laughs> what about Moses pleading with God, saying, "This is your character. You wouldn't ignore what will people say about you as a God who led the people forth in, from Egypt and then killed them in the desert." So he pled with God, and so did Abraham. Mm-hmm. And do you think Ecclesiastes is denying that? Somewhat, I think. Okay. It's difficult to see why he's in the Bible in that case, isn't it? There must be the reciprocity. I mean, that was a very that was a very good saying about it being reciprocal. There must be something in both these sets of state of sayings um, that um, that makes it appropriate for Ecclesiastes to be in the Bible, presumably. And Ecclesiastes, um, Ecclesiastes is surely right. You can't. You don't change God. I mean, Abraham or Moses didn't change God. Presumably, uh, they um, they got God to change. They changed God, what God was going to do, um, but that's probably different from changing God. Yeah, they appealed to His character. Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. But that doesn't say that we can't have a say. Sure, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Sure. I'm just wondering why I thought we'd sing Seek Ye First the Kingdom of God. Um, and uh, so I'm trying to think of an explanation or of a good reason. And the uh, good reason I've thought of, well, sort of good reason, um, is that <coughs> you could say that this um, exhortation on Jesus' part um, is the positive side to that of which Ecclesiastes is urging the negative. That is, Ecclesiastes is saying, don't think that you're going to make your life worthwhile. Don't think that being human is about 
what you can achieve, um, what you can enjoy. Those are all of extremely um, kind of immediate, uh, non-ultimate non significance. But if you want to know what to make the center of your life, uh, then here are some answers. Now we're going to do this in um, antiphonally. This is really difficult. It's one of the most demanding things that I ever do in classes, is get people to sing it like this. So uh, the uh, to about here, you're the first half and you're the second half. So the first half is going to start singing, Seek ye first the kingdom of God. And when they get to all the hallelujahs, you're going to start singing, Seek ye first the kingdom of God. And then we're going to go it like that. And uh, we're going to hope for the best, okay? Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. Allelu, alleluia. Seek ye alleluia. 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 Ask and it shall be. Alleluia. 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 Ask and it shall be given unto you. Seek and ye shall find. Knock and the door shall be opened unto you. Alleluia, alleluia. Alleluia, alleluia. Alleluia, alleluia, alleluia. You shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Alleluia, alleluia. Alleluia, alleluia. Alleluia, alleluia, alleluia. Gracious God, we want our lives to have point not to have that emptiness that Ecclesiastes talks about when you give all sorts of, when we give all sorts of other things um, a place as the things that ultimately count. And we pray that you will give us grace to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. We pray that this evening you'll show us some more of what the scriptures have to say to us about that. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, speaking of bread, um, it occurred, I had another bright idea. Well, it might be a bright idea, 
that um, on, the, on the June the 4th Monday, the Monday in finals week, when I said we could have a discussion uh, of Daniel if anybody wanted to have it, I thought, oh, you could come to our house and we could sit by the pool and we could eat scones and talk about Daniel. <laughs> so um, if you would like to think about whether you're likely to be in any condition on the Monday of finals week to come to our house, sit by the pool, eat scones uh, and talk about Daniel, then later on this evening you can decide, think about that when you're not thinking about Ecclesiastes. Uh, and I'll ask if there's anybody who might like to do that, and we'll do that. Uh, and even, for that matter, if you care to come at um, 6 o'clock or a bit earlier or something, you can swim. Uh, this would be a good way to start finals week, wouldn't it, really? But, um, but, like, but I'm being realistic. You'll all have 16 papers to write, so it's probably not possible. But uh, we'll think about it again later this evening. So what we're going to do now is um, I'm going to talk about Ecclesiastes uh, up until the break. Um, and... Um, in the second half, talk about some of the many great questions that you've asked, and either before or after the break, uh, talk just say a word or two about Daniel, and then you'll be doing the work on Daniel uh, over the next um, week or so. Um, so, Ecclesiastes, uh, which I've called How to Live with Doubt. How terrific that the Bible should give you a book on how to live with doubt. Um, when did, when did the book come from and who wrote it and things like that? It was amusing reading your papers because asking this question about who wrote books always is dissatisfying, isn't it? Because nobody ever knows the answer. Uh, but it's good at least for you to think about the question. At least I suppose it is. I felt a bit hard making you think about the question knowing that you were always going to come to the conclusion we don't know. Um, but maybe that's an important conclusion. Uh, the, origin, the origin and date of Ecclesiastes, well, um, the... A book might give you, give you the impression that it's Solomon who's talking because uh, it does talk about uh, somebody, somebody who is something like uh, the teacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. And you shouldn't need to be very intelligent to work out that somebody who was the son of David, king in Jerusalem, might be Solomon. Um, and yet it's also uh, striking and significant, I think, that it doesn't quite say Solomon. Uh, Solomon is the person who uh, certainly becomes... Solomon is the guy who had everything. And therefore, if anybody is in a position to be portrayed uh, as... Solomon is the ultimate Californian. Uh, he is the guy who can try everything. Uh, and if anybody, therefore, is in a position to, for you to imagine him giving a testimony uh, to um, having everything and whether that works, then Solomon is the guy to do the job for you. Um, is it Solomon though? Well, when chapter 8 says keep the king, king's command because of your sacred oath don't be terrified, go from his presence don't delay when the matter is unpleasant and so on it doesn't sound like the king actually talking it sounds like a piece of wise advice of the kind that you get in Proverbs uh, and likewise in chapter 10 when it says alas for you, O land, when your king is a servant and your prince's feast in the morning Happy you, O land, when your king is a nobleman and your prince's feast at the proper time. Doesn't this kind of sound like the kind of thing that Solomon uh, would be saying? Uh, and there is a problem about the language of the book. Uh, the language of the book, the Hebrew, uh, is most like Hebrew that we otherwise know is very late. It's most like the Hebrew of the Mishnah, as it says on the sheet there. The, the Mishnah is the collection of Jewish traditions from uh, the first century AD, from the time of Jesus, the kind of thing that would count as the traditions of the Pharisees were, were, got, were what got collected into the Mishnah after the fall of Jerusalem. The date of the Mishnah is usually said, I think, to be something like 200 AD. 
Um, and the Hebrew of uh, Ecclesiastes is weird and is more like the Hebrew of the Mishnah than like other parts of the Old Testament. Um, it's got Aramaic words in it um, and it's got Persian words in it and, and all of that is rather surprising if, um, if it comes from Solomon. Uh, it's got uh, links with uh, thinking of a similar kind from other peoples around. Somebody in their posting asked about whether there was a link with uh, Greek Epicurean uh, thinking. Um, uh, people have um, sometimes drawn similarities more with Greek thinking and sometimes more with Mesopotamian thinking uh, and that will um, interact with whether you think it's more likely that Ecclesiastes belongs in the Persian period or in the Greek period. It seems to me to be more likely that it belongs in the Persian period and that the um, non-Jewish, non-Israelite thinking that it compares with or that it's... Um, at home with or, or um, that it knows would be Mesopotamian thinking of the kind that you've read an example of in reading the Babylonian Theodicy um, and that you don't need the hypothesis that the author knew Greek thinking. Um, if you think Ecclesiastes belongs in the Greek period it would be quite logical to think that the author is interacting with Greek thinking but the, the argument is a bit kind of circular or you know, either you think Ecclesi either Ecclesiastes belonging in the Persian period um, belongs with the idea that it interacts with Mesopotamian thinking um, or Ecclesiastes belongs in the Greek period and it's aware of Greek thinking. Uh, I'm not sure it makes a great deal of difference because one of the things about the book is that the kind of issues that it raises are perennial issues. It's like Job. It's, it's talking about issues that um, are perennial human issues. The unity or, and the structure of the book you can read through it and get the impression that it's uh, just one thing after another like Proverbs. It's a pure anthology. It could be put in a different order and it wouldn't make any difference. Um, it's been claimed that it's a collection of material that leads to a climax and that the climax comes with um, the exhortation to remember your creator in the days of your youth before the days of trouble come. Um, the trouble with that argument is that it's not really much of a conclusion. Uh, and the fact that at the end of that paragraph that begins, remember your creator, you get that um, tagline from the beginning, vanity of vanity, says the teacher, all is vanity, uh, suggests that the book has simply gone round in circles, not that it's actually moved somewhere. There are a number of people who have written on the book who have suggested that the book divides into three parts. Uh, the New English Bible translation divides it into three parts. For worst, in his Commentary does that. Eaton, his commentary does that. Tamas, in, his co in her commentary, does that. Oh, that proves it then. Except that they all divide the three parts at different points. Uh, which suggests that they um, are, well, perhaps they needed to have a sense of dividing it in some way, but not that their threefold division corresponds to something about the book. More likely, when you're trying to understand the nature of the book, you won't do that on a basis of um, it's having a, a structure about it like that. Rather, the thing about the book is what I've here called its characteristic slant. The dominant message um, that you get from Ecclesiastes is stated by that bracket that stands around it. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Uh, somebody in their, in their posting asked about... Um, the fact that the TNIV, TNIV uses the word meaningless rather than the word vanity. Why did they choose to go with meaningless instead of vanity? Uh, the 
the, the Hebrew word, um, as, as somebody else is posting notes, um, the dictionary has pointed out how the Hebrew word, uh, the word hevel, uh, has been translated in lots of different ways. That word hevel, the word that's translated vanity or, or, or meaningless, is the, is the same as the name Abel, as in Cain and Abel. Uh, it sounds a bit different in the way it's transliterated into um, English, but it's actually, I, I, uh, uh, Abel's name was Hevel. Um, uh, and maybe you can see in the story kind of the significance of that. He was simply a breath, it was easy to blow him away. Um, and uh, the, so the idea of everything being Hevel is everything is a mere breath, there's no substance to it. Meaningless might give you the wrong impression. Vanity might give you the wrong impression. It's lack of substance. There's nothing to it, um, is uh, presumably the idea behind saying that everything is a breath. Breath of breaths, mere breath. Everything is a breath, says the, um, that tagline at either end of the book. And that can, then compares with the basic critical stance that's stated for instance, in the opening column. What do people gain from all the toil of which they toil under the sun? A generation goes, a generation comes, the earth remains forever. The sun rises, the sun goes down, it hurries to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south, goes round to the north, round and round goes the wind, on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they continue to flow. Nothing, there's no progress Everything simply goes round and round. Uh, is that the real message of Ecclesiastes? Uh, and if so, what's it doing in the Bible? Um, one of the complications of the book, as I've said on, uh, on the sheet on page 122, um, is that although much of it expresses that down-to-earth um, gloominess, there are many verses and many sections of the book that express quite orthodox wisdom teaching. Um, the kind of thing that you might read uh, in Proverbs uh, and statements of faith in God as the great giver. One of the phrases that keeps coming in the book is, is the phrase God gives. So the question that raises is what's the relationship between the positive orthodox statements uh, and the gloomy ones? Whatever the answer to that is, and I'll come back to that in a minute, uh, the basis for forcing the question needs noting. Um, Ecclesiastes incorporates traditional orthodox sound teaching, biblical teaching if you like, but it insists on facing how things are under the sun. Uh, and that's its nature as a wisdom book. All the wisdom books insist on experience, on, on what you can actually see in life. Ecclesiastes insists on experience, on what you can see, more resolutely than any other wisdom book. So, how should we see the relationship between the two um, sides to the book? The, the, the more positive and hopeful and orthodox, uh, and the more questioning and sceptical. Traditional critical scholarship um, saw the orthodox positive statements as corrections of the gloomy ones. So, what happened was somebody wrote a book full of gloomy statements... And somebody else came and inserted, added the orthodox ones so that you didn't go and commit suicide. Uh, but the problem with that theory is that it's difficult to make a clean break 
uh, between the orthodox ones and the gloomy ones. And you're still, made, you're still left with making sense of the book as a whole. If you read instead, if you read the gloomy statements first and the believing statements second, that might suggest uh, that the um, gloomy statements are the way the world sees things uh, and the positive statements are the believer's answer to questions about the human predicament. Uh, but if that's the case, then the answers are rather thin. So uh, that view comes close to the picture of Ecclesiastes um, as an expression of the darkness into which the gospel would eventually s shine. And that's how it's sometimes been used in evangelism, I think. Uh, inviting people to see the truth of its portrayal of the gloom of life without Christ. If that's how the book came into existence, then you might um, hypothesize that the writer wrote the book uh, in the gloomy way in order to show people um, the grimness of life without God, in order to push them to towards God. Or you might hypothesize that it was a book written by somebody who meant all the gloomy statements and that God had it included in his book um, by God's providence so that it could be used in that um, evangelistic kind of way. That's if the gloom is tempered by, if the gloom is the main thing, the gloom is tempered by the orthodoxy. Uh, but the problem with that, it seems to me, is that it um, underplays the positive statements uh, of faith uh, in the book. As I say, it's, uh, the book is very often talking about the way that God gives. For instance, the end of chapter 5. This is what I've seen to be good. It's fitting to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of the life God gives us, for this is our lot. Likewise, all to whom God gives wealth and possessions and whom he enables to enjoy them and to accept their lot and find enjoyment in their toil, this is the gift of God. For they will scarcely brood over the days of their lives, because God keeps them occupied with the joy of their hearts. So it would be better... I think, uh, to see Ecclesiastes as picturing the, li the life, uh, picturing the believer as the person who, who can't hide from the emptiness of life under the sun and who is challenged to believe nevertheless. Um, the more fashionable, critical view thus sees the book the other way round uh, from the older critical view that I was talking about just now. That is, not that the gloomy uh, statements came first and then somebody added uh, the positive ones, but more that the positive ones are the background against which the gloomy ones kind of push. So the orthodox statements are a believer's theological commitment. The gloomy ones are the facts about life that Ecclesiastes implies believers easily gloss over, avoid. So Ecclesiastes might then be a warning not to think that we've got the truth all buttoned up. Uh, it represents a protest like the protest in Job against the oversimplified truths of Job's comforters. Somebody in their posting wondered about the uh, links with Ecclesiastes and Job and that seems to me to be um, one of the uh, ways in which the two compare. Job's comforters thought they knew how, everything, how things worked. Ecclesiastes, like Job, points out that... Uh, 
they, the truths that they utter are oversimplified. Ecclesiastes might also um, constitute Scripture's permission to doubt. Because believers do go through times uh, when biblical truth itself seems full of holes. Even though they then may recognise that there are no better answers than the biblical ones. Ecclesiastes is then like Job himself. Or as a student once wrote in a paper for me, uh, Ecclesiastes is like the book of Job without God appearing at the end. Two ways of looking at the book then. Uh, the um, gloomy statements are tempered by the orthodox or the orthodox statements tempered by the gloomy. Or maybe, my number six on that uh, sheet then, we need to see Ecclesiastes as a two-edged sword. Maybe we can't resolve the question whether the positive or the negative wins. Maybe these are two, the, we should see these simply set alongside each other without the tension between them being resolved. And I think the ending of the book is interesting in this connection. Several people in their posting uh, raised questions about the ending. Um, there's a kind of double bracket around the book. That is, the, the vast bulk of it is, is these statements of um, questioning about the nature of life and so on. And then, uh, as the first bracket round the main body of the material, there is that repeated declaration, vanity of vanities, as the teacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And then, outside that, you get another more expansive bracket, because you get the very first verse, the word of the teacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Uh, and then you get the um, uh, eight verses, Seven verses. 14 minus 8 is 6. The six verses that come at the very end, outside the bracket. The words of the teacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Uh, that word, teacher, the word is that's, um, uh, of which the Hebrew word is kohelet, which, as the NRSV tells you, is traditionally rendered preacher. But kahal uh, is the uh, ordinary Hebrew word for the congregation. Um, so, a, a Kohelet, the, those translations assume that a Kohelet is a leader in the congregation. It seems to me to be just as likely that a Kohelet is a member of a congregation. It's like, an, it's like the English word churchman or churchwoman, church member. Uh, but however exactly you translate it, that opening statement that these are the words of, the, of a church person, a church teacher, a church preacher, a church, preacher, a church man or a church woman, um, and saying that it's the, the word, they're the words of the son of David, is saying to you, you've got to take this stuff seriously. This is not unorthodox stuff. This is something that comes um, from the congregation. Um, and the end, uh, the, the closing six-verse bracket says that, amongst other things. Besides being wise, the, the teacher, the churchman, also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs. The teacher, the churchman, sought to find pleasing words, and he wrote words of truth plainly. So, you ought to listen to what you've read. You shouldn't dismiss what you've read. In other words, this, um, this editor who's um, providing you with the, uh, the closing bracket is saying, do take seriously what you've read. Uh, incidentally, in the way in which this um, bracket works, the opening and the closing, 
it provides one of the best examples, maybe the best example, um, of something I talked about with regard to Psalms. Brevard Childs wrote a book called An Introduction to the Old Testament as Scripture, in which he sought to show how the Old Testament books were themselves shaped uh, in such a way, as, as to use his phrase, as to function as canon. That is, in order to be scripture. In order to show you that these were not, whatever was their origin, maybe somebody originally wrote the book of Ruth as a short story or something like that, uh, but that the books have been shaped uh, in order to, ad to be adaptable, to, to adapt them to a role of being authoritative in the community. Uh, they've been adapted in such a way as to function as, as canon, as scripture. Uh, and the way in which Ecclesiastes has been edited by this framework that's around it provides, for my money, one of Childs's um, best examples. Because the opening and the closing are not the words of whoever churchman is himself, Solomon or anybody else. They are the words of somebody else who is saying, um, this is why you should read this book and why you should take it seriously, but also how to put it into a context. Um, they are um, adapting the book, telling the readers of this book who are reading this book of scripture how to read it. So in verses 9 and 10 of the last chapter, this um, bracket uh, is telling you to take seriously what you've read. It's really rather like Proverbs in the way in which the teacher has taught people knowledge and uh, arranged Proverbs and found pleasing words and so on. And then goes on to say how, in this particular case at least, the sayings of the wise are like goads. You know what goads are? They're spurs. You, you dig the spur into the side of the horse, and the horse presumably doesn't like it too much. Uh, but it's the way that you get the horse to go in the direction in which you want it to go. But it's not much fun uh, having a, um, a goad or a spur dug into you. Uh, and as you read Ecclesiastes, it makes you say, Ouch! Doesn't it? I wish he, I wish he hadn't said that. I'd like not to have had to face that fact, you say, you say to yourself as you read Ecclesiastes. Or the closing bracket goes on to say, the sayings of the wise in this book are like nails firmly fixed. It's not very nice having a nail fixed into you. But they are the collected sayings that are given by one shepherd. Shepherds are guys who are actually caring about you. Maybe the one, some translations give the word shepherd a big S. Maybe God is the one shepherd. Uh, but alternatively, somebody like David or Solomon or the teacher, whatever it is, it's a shepherd kind of person. It's a person who's looking after the flock, who's giving you these tough things to think about. Uh, that's fine. Uh, but uh, one Ecclesiastes is fine. Uh, but let's not have loads of Ecclesiasteses. The um, bracket then goes on to say, If anything beyond these, my child, beware. And then there's the seminarian's favourite verse in the entire Bible, uh, of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. Um, and it's important to see how, in, in its context, that's a statement about the danger of too much Ecclesiastes. Verses 9 and 10, 11, some Ecclesiastes is good. Verse 12, don't spend your whole lifetime reading Ecclesiastes. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Be in awe of God and keep God's commandments, for that is the whole duty of everyone. 
for God will bring every deed into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. So that the book then closes on a note, on one of those orthodox notes, uh, who, which um, Ecclesiastes, Kohelet, has as his own concern to question those kind of statements, because when you look at what actually happens in life, it often doesn't work out that way. Um, and you can't resolve the tension between the declaration God will bring every deed into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or bad. And the fact that it often doesn't work out that way. Um, random things happen. Bad things happen to people. Um, uh, and as we've seen in reading Proverbs, when you read Proverbs, you can get the impression that bad things never happen to good people. Bad things do happen to good people. And there aren't always explanations like the one in Job, uh, whether or not you like the explanation in Job. Uh, so, Ecclesiastes, the main part of Ecclesiastes, wants you to face the facts about human life, about how human life is. Um, but the uh, bracket at the end that tells you in what context to read Ecclesiastes reminds you at the very end uh, n not to think that what Ecclesiastes to say, has to say is all the truth that there ever is. Uh, and, and leaves you with the tension between those because that's how we... Uh, have to live our lives, living with the tension between those. David Allen Hubbard, um, the a long time uh, president of Fuller, president of Fuller for nearly 30 years, for, for 30 years I think probably, and who was also Old Testament professor, on the first of the two occasions when I met him, when he came to uh, uh, give a lecture in England, um, gave his lecture on the wisdom books in which he included uh, this description of the wisdom books. Proverbs says, these are, the, these are the rules for life. Try them and you will see that they work. Job and Ecclesiastes say, we did and they don't. <laughs> that sums up uh, the way that they work. You cannot resolve those two. Uh, you have to hold on to both those. Um, if you have Ecclesiastes without Proverbs, you're in a mess. But if you have Proverbs without Ecclesiastes... You're also in a mess. The key experience that, it, that Ecclesiastes insists on is death. You cannot understand life unless you keep in focus the fact that we're on our way to death. Uh, in understanding death, even the limitations of wisdom have to be emphasised. Chapter 9, for instance. The same fate comes to all, to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and to the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to those who sacrifice and to those who do not sacrifice. As are the good, so are the sinners. Those who swear are like those who shun an oath. There is an evil, in the sense of a bad thing, in all that happens under the sun, that the same fate comes to everyone. The hearts of all are full of evil. Madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that they go to the dead. But whoever is joined with all the living has hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. The living know that they will die. The dead know nothing. They have no more reward. And even the memory of them is lost. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished. Never again will they have any share in all that happens under the sun. 
uh, chapter 9. So, uh, facing the fact that you're going to die uh, is really important. And uh, it's important uh, even, even though you know that death won't be the end. It's still the case that how long you're going to live here it has a limit to it. It's tempting to think that you're going to live forever, but you're not. Um, here is um, something from uh, Metropolitan Anthony of Sorozu, who is um, an Orthodox Archbishop. Anthony Bloom is the name often his books are... Um, uh, that's the name that often appears on his books, Anthony Bloom. Death is the touchstone of our attitude to life. People who are afraid of death are afraid of life. It's impossible not to be afraid of life with all its complexity and dangers if one is afraid of death. This means that to solve the problem of death is not a luxury. If we're afraid of death, we will never be prepared to take ultimate risks. We will spend our life in a cowardly, careful and timid manner. It's only if we can face death, make sense of it, determine its place and our place in regard to it, that we'll be able to live in a fearless way and to the fullness of our ability. Too often we wait until the end of our life to face death, whereas we would have lived quite differently if only we'd faced death at the outset. Most of the time we live as though we were writing a draft for the life that we will live later. We live not in a definitive way, but provisionally, as though preparing for the day when we really will begin to live. We're like people who write a rough draft with the intention of making a fair copy later, but the final version never gets written. Death comes before we've had the time or even generated the desire to make a definitive formulation. The injunction, be mindful of death, which Orthodox Christians are very fond of, is not a call to live with a sense of terror in the constant awareness that death is to overtake us. It means rather, be aware of the fact that what you are saying now, doing now, hearing, enduring or receiving now, may be the last event or experience of your present life. In which case, it must be a crowning, not a defeat. A summit, not a trough. If only we realised, whenever confronted with a person, that this might be the last moment either of his life or of ours, we will be much more intense, much more attentive to the words we speak and the things that we do. Only awareness of death will give life this immediacy and depth. We'll bring life to life. We'll make it so intense that its totality is summed up in the present moment. All life is at every moment an ultimate act. Now put on the um, page there under number seven 
what difference does Jesus make to this? Does his resurrection wipe out all that we learn from Ecclesiastes that, about a life that ends in death? Well, Anthony Bloom doesn't think so. Um, and neither does it wipe out, does it destroy uh, the other aspects of uh, the unsatisfactoriness, the limitedness of the nature of, of our human experience of life as Ecclesiastes describes it. Uh, when, when people ask me what's my favourite book of the Bible, I quite often say Ecclesiastes, which isn't the answer you're supposed to give. You're supposed to say John or Romans or something like that. Um, I think Ecclesiastes came to be my favourite book um, uh, two or three or four years after I came to Fuller. Um, when um, my first wife Anne had got um, totally, was totally disabled uh, and was no longer able to, um, or was, had almost uh, lost the ability to swallow and therefore wasn't, wasn't able to eat uh, properly. And um, I uh, remember an occasion on one of those beautiful California January, sunny January days um, when I, we, I took her down to, uh, I wheeled her down the hill from where we live on Orange, on Orange Grove down into Old Town uh, to the Ghirardellis that used to be there. They closed the Ghirardellis down. I didn't go often enough. That was the problem. Um, but we did go, uh, Kathleen and I, to Coldstone yesterday, so all is not lost. Uh, but we used to be able to walk to Ghirardellis. Uh, and I remember this, this day... Um, when uh, we had a large ice cream and uh, she was able to eat a little of it. And I then pushed her back up the hill to our apartment and I would sing silly songs to her as we came up the hill about how I wasn't going to be able to get to the top because I was um, uh, full of ice cream. Uh, and she would laugh. And then quite likely, that day or another day, I would push her around to the... Um, to the pool, we'd sit by the pool and I'd have a glass of wine. And that wasn't enough. But it wasn't nothing. Um, and it wasn't to be despised. Uh, it's, it was a gift from God. The fact that Anne is going to be raised with a new body is a great fact, but it didn't undo the grimness of the nature of the life that she had to live in the meantime. Um, and neither did it undo the tough aspect to the fact that I lived with um, the fact that my, life, that my wife was um, in that position. The, 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 the things that we could enjoy under the sun, of the kind that Ecclesiastes enthuses over, were not enough, but they were not nothing, and they were not to be despised. They were gifts from God. Um, that's, uh, that's what Ecclesiastes says. Uh, and it's a wonderful gift from God, I came to um, realise, that this book should be in the canon of Scripture. Uh, um, I don't know whether to say, I can't imagine how it got through some community screening procedure. I mean, weren't there the equivalent of rabbis who said, you can't put that book in the Bible! Um, but I think maybe more likely 
It's not that they were fooled by the reference to Solomon or the near reference to Solomon, it was, um, but rather that they were themselves uh, overcome uh, by the truth that it speaks. Ecclesiastes, Tamez suggests um, she is the uh, person who I quoted the uh, Latino proverbs from in connection with proverb, with uh, with talking about proverbs, uh, and they come in her commentary on Ecclesiastes. Own what you cannot do. She says, summing up Ecclesiastes, you can't understand the times, you can't achieve justice, you can't avoid dying. Enjoy food, wine, work and relationships. Do that in appreciation of God's giving and in reverence for God. There are also articles by her and others um, in the book called Return to Babel, which is mentioned in the bibliography, uh, readings of Ecclesiastes for, out of different um, cultures of an interesting kind. Talk to the person next to you for a few minutes about what you make of Ecclesiastes now. What you think about death. Yeah, tell the person next to you what you think about death. That would be exciting.
Okay. Uh, anybody want to say anything about um, any of that? If not, let me pick up a few of the um, questions off the postings. Um, if everything is meaningless and both righteous and wicked have the same destiny, why bother being wise? Uh, it's really worth picking that up because it's really such a basic uh, question. Um, it, it reminds me of Romans 6. Uh, shall we continue si to sin in order that grace may abound? It's the same question. Um, and Paul's answer in Romans 6, you, you, you think that Paul is going to answer, well, if you think that, you'll find that grace doesn't apply to you after all. That's what we'd probably say if we were preaching. But that isn't what Paul says. What Paul says is, uh, if you think that way, you haven't, understand anything, haven't understood anything about my argument so far. That is, the point about what God was doing uh, was uh, in order that we should live righteous lives, in order that... Uh, we are, having died to sin, we, don't, we no longer go on living in it. So if you think that you could ignore that, ask that question, we need to go back through the argument again. And I think that will be the, the um, answer to, um, the, to, the, to that question. If anything is meaningless and both righteous, we could have the same destiny, why bother with being wise? You are wise and you are righteous because it's the right thing to do. Um, and the human thing to do. Okay, if you don't want to be human, that's fine. Well, except it isn't really, but, um, but that's the human thing to do in light of the reality of God and of the truth of God. Ecclesiastes would also comment that the, uh, the, 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 the mistake you need to be wary of is of thinking that anything can give you ultimate meaning, even being wise. Um, even wisdom, even uh, giving all your entire self to gaining wisdom, giving your entire self even to gaining righteousness, it's not going to work. Not merely because you're a sinner, because these are all ways in which you think that you can find the ultimate thing. Things you can achieve, things you can enjoy, things you can come to understand, things you can achieve even of a moral kind. Getting justice in the world, you think you're going to achieve it. You're not going to achieve it. Be realistic. Um, and that links with... Um, so even wisdom. Don't think that by wisdom you're going to come to understand everything. Uh, that links with somebody else's question. I want to know what this book says about social justice. Many Christians I meet are very interested in and committed to working towards social justice. Ecclesiastes seems to be saying, relax, change is an illusion. Certainly not something to spend all your energy working towards. Things are as they've always been and no amount of effort or striving will make them any different. Is that accurate? And if it is, is it something that Christians should pay attention to? Or do Christians have a responsibility to work for change in the world? Yeah, we have a responsibility to work for change. I don't think Ecclesiastes is denying that. Um, but uh, be realistic about what's going to be achieved. The world is no more just than it was when Jesus came. There is no more peace in the world than there was when Jesus came. There has been no progress in the last 2,000 years. Now face that fact. Um, and, and, and don't kind of kid yourself that you are going to bring about the kingdom of God, which is what fuller students are inclined to think. <laughs> um, by all means, 
little things, little ways in which we can hold back uh, the, the floods of wrong. And little ways in which we can make progress. And how terrific sometimes when, when evils that didn't, like, like take slavery, um, that slavery got, slavery got abolished. But of course, first of all, it had to be invented. There wasn't any slavery in 1400. Um, there, 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 are, there are things that go wrong and then it's possible to put them right sometimes. So it's not that nothing ever happens and there's, not, there's nothing to aim for. Um, but don't set yourself, for disappoint, set yourself up for disappointment um, in, um, in ignoring Ecclesiastes' point about what can be achieved. <coughs> How did the Israelites respond to this message, knowing that they believed that suffering and oppression was a result of their covenant unfaithfulness? Well, that they, um, the, the problem with that post, that comment, is that the Israelites knew that their suffering and oppression was sometimes a result of their covenant unfaithfulness. But as you know from reading the Psalms, they also knew that sometimes their suffering and oppression was not the result of their covenant unfaithfulness. Just the same as they knew that sometimes individual suffering is a result of the individual's covenant unfaithfulness. But the point about Job is sometimes the suffering of an individual is not the result of covenant unfaithfulness. So the Israelites had to, and, and the same, you get the same um, uh, two um, possibilities talked about um, by Jesus and by Paul. Um, so um, Ecclesiastes takes one particular. Um, angle on the nature um, of uh, why bad things happen. Um, you have to be aware of both of those. Given the theme of generational inheritance, which is so key in the Old Testament, that some of the futility of death is taken away and the opportunity to leave a legacy in the land for your son to fulfil, continue, bring to completion. Why is that missing here? Well, a couple of things about that. First, I'm not sure where in the Old Testament, I know people often say this, but I don't know that it says anywhere, anywhere in the Old Testament that some of the futility of death is taken away in the opportunity to leave a legacy in the land for your son to fulfil, continue, bring to completion. Uh, but also, if there is any indication of that, then uh, Ecclesiastes lacking that is like the wisdom, is, is parallel to an aspect of the way the, the wisdom literature as a whole lacks many of the distinctive convictions that are expressed everywhere, elsewhere in the Old Testament. It doesn't talk about the promise to Israel's ancestors. It doesn't talk about the Exodus. It doesn't talk about the Israelites get, God giving the, the land to the Israelites. It doesn't talk about the covenant. Uh, it, it's, um, uh, it, the, the nature of the wisdom books is not to refer to, not to appeal to those distinctives of Israelite faith, but to think about the questions, um, bracketing those, leaving them out. And that might be, it's at least a plausible view, that the reason why it does that is because it's living in that Second Temple period when those events were a long time ago. Um, and, and so it is either, a thought, either as a thought exercise of its own or for the sake of people who needed it, uh, we're seeking to work out what you can say if you leave those considerations out for the sake of people who... Um, find it hard to keep those considerations in mind now when, as I say, it is a long time ago since God made the covenant. Um, somebody refers to 
Some theologians like Dallas Willard who talk about how our character development here on earth matters because in heaven we will continue to grow in character. Is that right? I don't know anywhere in the Bible it says that we'll continue to grow in character in heaven. Does anybody know where that, com where that comes? Well, you all know and you're shy, you won't tell me, that's a shame. But um, I don't think it says that anywhere in the Bible. Um, but but, I, but I, I do think that nevertheless, the, the point that the development of character is an important feature of Old Testament and New Testament, um, in its own right, and even, even if it doesn't carry on in heaven, that's a, that's a good point. Um, and Ecclesiastes, I assume, uh, assumes that, because there is, an, there is a sense in which exactly what Ecclesiastes is concerned about is the development of character. Uh, and it's saying, the development of character, for instance, involves you not thinking that the most important thing in your life and the thing that gives you some meaning is what you can achieve. Which again is what any decent fuller student thinks, right? You're going to achieve great things for God. Well, if the God, for God thing is there, okay, but most of the time it's really more for me because it gives me some significance. Um, the, the development of character depends on recognising that you're not going to find uh, ultimate meaning uh, in achievement uh, or in pleasure or in getting a PhD trust me, um, or in writing books, trust me, um, that those are not of ultimate significance. You have to see their rel the relative significance that they have, which Ecclesiastes presses, and seeing that is a really important part of the development of character. Uh, one other thing about social justice, um, uh, there were... I can't see it now, but um, but one of the postings was kind of disturbed at the kind of quietest and not trying aspect to Ecclesiastes. And I think that you need to see uh, that an assumption of, about Ecclesiastes, that there are societies, contexts, in which there isn't much scope for people um, to bring about social justice. Um, it's all very well... In our context, we could do something about that. In many contexts in the world today, people can't do that. If you're under the impression, if you're under the oppression of the empire, then you don't have much chance to achieve social justice. Uh, and Ecclesiastes is concerned for people who've got to cope with grim lives. It's like um, similar to Nehemiah, if you like, uh, with uh, where it's possible for things to go wrong in the community, but the reason why things go wrong in the community is because is in part because of the oppression of the empire. And when you are under the impression of the superpower, um, then there are severe limits on what you can achieve. And we have to keep reminding ourselves that the kind of context in which we live, uh, in which we are the superpower, and in which we do have democratic rights and stuff like that, is quite different from that in which nearly everybody uh, in the Old Testament ever lived. Ecclesiastes seems to promote a cyclical view of time, that is, nothing ever changes. Things keep going round in the same old cycles. This seems to be in tension with the view in other parts of the Old and New Testament that history is purposive and moving towards a grand conclusion in which God's purposes and will are finally unveiled on earth. Ecclesiastes seems much more pessimistic in this regard. How would you explain this tension? Well, I don't see, any, I don't see much indication in Old and New Testament that history is purposive and moving towards a grand conclusion. That makes it sound like evolutionary. Um, the Old Testament story is basically a story that goes, well, it goes at least downwards as much as upwards. 
Um, and when you read about the church in the New Testament and then you think about us, it doesn't seem to me that we've made lots of progress over the last 2,000 years. Uh, as I say, it's certainly with regard to uh, justice and peace in society and the world and whatnot, that we are no better off than we were 2,000 years ago. Now, of course, God is going to achieve the consummation of his purpose. But to use a phrase like working towards is to imply that there's kind of gradual improvement. There is no gradual improvement. Um, Old-fashioned uh, evangelical Americans used to believe in gra things gradually getting worse. Um, I can't remember all those terms about pre-millennial, tribulate, no, pre-tribulate, you know those things. No, you don't, you're too young to know about them. You do know about them, yes. One or two of you know about them. What is it, is it pre-millennial? Somebody help me. Yeah, those kind of things. Uh, but anyway, things are going to get worse and worse. Uh, in the premillennial view of eschatology, and then God will burst in. There's, there's, pretty much not, not, there's quite a lot of evidence for that view in Scripture. Now, nowadays, because we're all kind of like this, we believe in we have a more kind of postmillennial view. We think everything's going to improve. That's a nice American view. Uh, hard to find in Scripture. Um, Ecclesiastes' view that things just go round and round and nothing improves uh, uh, fits a lot of um, the nature of our experience, I suggest. Oh, this is so gloomy, isn't it? Um, no, because there's no, the, because facing facts can never be gloomy. gloomy. They're God's facts. Um, God is going to bring about the consummation of his purpose. Um, when Jesus comes, it's not going to be because we have worked hard in order to achieve the kingdom of God. Uh, it's going to be a glorious surprise. Um, glorious and surprise. Uh, and not because of what we've achieved but because God decides that's the moment when God will bring about the consummation of his purpose. Um, which nearly takes me into Daniel. I'll talk about Daniel for uh, ten minutes before the break. So that's page 125 uh, in the um, syllabus. Uh, I like to think about Daniel as a book that brings the writings together because it combines uh, narrative and worship and wisdom. Uh, the book of Daniel declares that the reign of God is here and that the reign of God is coming. It does both of those. Again, it kind of confusing you. The, the first half of the book of Daniel uh, declares that the reign of God is here shows God active and bringing about um, his purpose uh, through political means, through the emperors, through the superpowers. The second half of the book, The Visions, declares that the reign of God is coming. Because in the experience of the people uh, who live at the climax of those visions uh, in the second century, the reign of God is clearly not here. There are um, thus two uh, aspects to the nature of the book uh, and two periods to which it especially speaks. The first half of the book, the stories, uh, presupposes the position uh, of people like Esther, only a bit, little bit earlier on, uh, people who are living in exile or in dispersion, uh, living at the uh, foreign court and facing the pressures of life there, 
but seeing God do extraordinary things. In the same way as Esther does, only seeing them in a kind of um, interventionist sort of way, uh, rather than seeing God only acting um, uh, by, behind the scenes and through other people's decisions. You can see God reigning, say, the, say these stories. The second half of the book is dominated by a series of visions. Uh, and where the visions are explicit about the periods to which they refer, they cover an arc that goes from Daniel's own day through into the second century uh, to the time when there is a great crisis in Jerusalem in the period of Antiochus Epiphanes, Antiochus IV. The Persian control of the um, Middle East uh, ended when the Greek Empire took over the Persian Empire but then immediately after Alexander's death it split uh, and there were two sub-empires either side of Jerusalem that particularly affected the future of Jerusalem at the end of the, third the end of the 4th century and through the 3rd into the 2nd. To the south there uh, is Egypt, the Ptolemies were the rulers there uh, and to the north, the northeast, uh, there is the Syrian Empire ruled by the Seleucids. And Jerusalem sometimes belongs to one and sometimes belongs to the other. Uh, and is often playing the one off over against the other. Uh, and consequently made itself rather unpopular. Uh, as tended to be the case, as, the, um, as Israel tended to, to, to do in relation to empires through its story really. And the king who uh, got kind of terminally fed up with this was Antiochus IV, um, who called himself Antiochus Epiphanes, Antiochus who was God manifest. There's a claim for you. Um, who um, forbade regular worship of Yahweh in Jerusalem and introduced into the temple in Jerusalem worship that would suit his troops, uh, which was some kind of idol image kind of thing, which is what... Uh, the, the visions in the book of Daniel describe as the original abomination of desolation. Some kind of sacrilegious, terrible uh, thing in the temple that, is, that stands for everything that is against what the um, worship of Yahweh is supposed to be. And that's the crisis to which the climactic uh, vision, the climaxes and the visions in Daniel refer. Here are people then who cannot see God reigning in the way that you can see God reigning in those stories in the first half of the book. Um, and, and so the two halves of the book again give you two testimonies, two pictures uh, in tension with each other but both being realistic about the way that sometimes things are in the world. Sometimes you can see God at work in the world. Sometimes it looks as if God has gone. Uh, and in that context in the 160s, it looks as if God has gone. But Daniel's visions promise that God is going to bring an extraordinary deliverance to people in Jerusalem. Um, and astonishingly, exactly that happens. Uh, that is what then leads into the people of Jerusalem being, being able to throw off uh, the empire that's ruling them. Uh, see Antiochus uh, out uh, of their midst, 
and gain control of their own destiny um, and renew, rededicate, cleanse and rededicate the temple, which is the event of which the um, Jewish festival of Hanukkah um, is a commemoration. Uh, and that um, act of deliverance took place in 164 BC. Uh, so the, both halves of the book of Daniel, then it turns out, talk about things that you could talk, so talk about the realities of God's involvement in the world. The reign of God is here, says the first half of the book. The reign of God is coming, trust me, say the visions in the second half of the book. It's not here, say the visions, but it will come. Here on page 125 then are some descriptions of some ways in which the basis for which um, I describe Daniel as a narrative book and a worship book and a wisdom book and as in that sense having links with all the rest of the material in the writings. It's a narrative book uh, in that particularly the first half uh, is a series of stories that are structured as a chiasm. <coughs> Have I talked to you about chiasms? No, shaking his heads. Um, the, the, let, let me explain it by, by uh, looking at it. You can see there how in chapters 4 and 5, those two chapters balance each other in that both of them are about some kind of omen, something strange that happens uh, that the, um, the Daniel is able to interpret uh, and, that, and whose message then confronts the king. In, in chapter 4, it's that Nebuchadnezzar uh, has a dream. And in chapter 5, it's the writing on the wall in the time of King, king Belshazzar. both cases, something happens which makes the king think. Nobody can explain it, uh, but Daniel does. Either side of those two stories, in chapters 3 and 6... Uh, there is some way in which those who belong to God have their faithfulness put on trial. Um, and so in chapter 3, it's the challenge to bow down to the image, uh, which leads, down, leads to the three uh, friends of Daniel being thrown into the um, furnace. And in chapter 6, it's that uh, you're not allowed to pray, so Daniel keeps praying, does it quite publicly, and gets thrown um, into the lion den. And in both the stories... The, the three friends and then Daniel get marvellously delivered. So chapters 3 and 6 are like each other. They pair with each other. And then chapters 2 and 7 pair with each other. Because, because both chapter 2 and chapter 7 give you a vision of four empires. Chapters, in chapter 2 it's a vision of a statue made of four different metals. And in chapter 7 it's a vision of a series of beasts. But both times there are four of them. Um, and uh, the collection, this, these pictures of the, of the empire lead you on from Daniel's own day into the future. So chapters 2 and 7 um, pair with each other. So you can see then how the, the order 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7 goes kind of up, up the staircase and down the staircase. Or it's like one, it's called a chiasm because it's one half of a Greek letter chi. Of an X. It goes like that. Uh, you can see if you look at the, uh, the way that the uh, chapters go.
the, the main part of the first half of the book then is structured very carefully narratively in that way. Chapter 1 is then an introduction to the narrative which uh, opens up all the questions about being in exile, about whether you can be faithful, about whether God will be with you, uh, about whether you can succeed. And then the, the, the last part of the book from chapter 8 through to the end uh, explain, develops aspects uh, of the, the main visions in chapter 2 and chapter 7 in particular. So the, uh, Daniel is a narrative book uh, insofar as particularly the first half is structured in that way. As with other books we've looked at, uh, the stories raise, raise the question about whether you're reading story or history. Are you reading about something that actually happened? Um, and my assumption, as with the other stories, is that they're they something like an inspired mixture of fact and fiction. They are a series of takes on the same issue. There's a recurrent plot. Um, all the, in one sense, all the stories are the same. There's a crisis about being in exile, which then gets resolved. There's an underlying issue. Who is responsible for history? Is God in charge of history, which is what the book is inclined to say? Or is Daniel and the, and the king in, in charge of history, which the stories also illustrate? There's a sense in which the stories deconstruct. But deconstruction at its best is not a negative thing. It's showing you the tension between um, the reality of God's reign and the reality of human responsibility. It's a narrative politics. That is, it's stories about how to live politically. It's like Esther in its setting, but it's like Ezra and Nehemiah in having a male history, a male hero. Daniel is a narrative book. Daniel is a worship book. In chapter 1, they t chapter one tells you about how the vessels from the temple are taken off uh, to Babylon. Chapter 2 tells you about worship um, uh, as a response to an answer to prayer. Chapter 3, the story about bowing down to the statue, uh, is about the form of worship as a pressure. In chapter 4, the, foreign, the, the, foreign, the story of Nebuchadnezzar's dream, this foreign king is drawn into worship. In chapter 5, in the story about the writing on the wall, um, the worship vessels are being used for um, a blasphemous banquet. Uh, in chapter 6, Daniel um, persists in prayer when prayer is under pressure. Uh, and chapter 9 is one of those great um, chapters of confession uh, that recur, of which you get examples in Ezra and in Nehemiah as well. Daniel is a worship book. And thirdly, Daniel is a wisdom book. In the first half, in the stories, it's something like the wisdom of Proverbs that you read being um, applied by Daniel and his friends. It's the uh, kind of wisdom that you might have learnt in order to be, if you're at court college, in order to, to serve at the court out of Proverbs. It's about how to live in history. There are three references to God's wisdom. There are six references to the, the wisdom of Daniel and his friends. There are 14 references to the other wise men who, of course, turn out not to be very wise. The second half of the book, The Visions, is more what you might call theological wisdom. It's more like the wisdom that you read about in Proverbs 1 to 9. If chapters 1 to 6 is about how to live in history, chapters 7 to 12 are about how to think about history, how to think about the um, succession of empires in the Middle East. It's wisdom as revelation. Uh, the word apocalypse is a word that often gets used uh, about these chapters. 
it's uh, got a concern with understanding, as chapter 9, the prayer of confession especially, says. Um, in Christian thinking, Daniel is often the archetypal prophet. So it's really funny that the book of Daniel never describes him as a prophet. Um, but it does, on at least one occasion, describe him as, as operating like a prophet. When he interprets Nebuchadnezzar's dream for him, and then tells him in chapter 4, verse 27, um, Therefore, O king, may my counsel be acceptable to you. The NRSV has got, atone for your sins with, un with righteousness, which is a weird thing, a weird way to translate it. Um, the margin tells you that the Aramaic verb actually is to break off. So break off your sins with righteousness, break off your iniquities with mercy to the oppressed, so that your prosperity may be prolonged. Um, and that's where Daniel operates most clearly, like a prophet in the story. Daniel is a narrative book, Daniel is a worship book, Daniel is a wisdom book. Okay, go away, come back at 8.12 and we shall discuss some of the many exciting questions that you asked in your postings about um, the writings in general.